Hey everyone, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. Welcome to the Wednesday, March 10th, 2021 edition. We're actually live. I, I We were just joking. We hope we don't mess this up too much for you. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're live tonight. We uh, have Eric Weber as our Eric Webb as our guest. And we're going to be talking about or we're going to be putting to bed, hopefully, the last of the winter of 2020-2021 and all the close calls that uh, that we experience here in the Carolinas. So uh, if you are new to the program, we'd love for you to chime in. You can do that many different ways by commenting on the Facebook Live or the YouTube page, as well as Periscope. We'll be monitoring those throughout the show. And if you have any particular Eric questions uh, that you want answered, we will uh, do our best to get those answered for you. And uh, we'll let Eric at the end of the show promote his social media so you, you can follow him and all of his uh, really cool updates about not only winter weather, but uh, La Nina, El Nina, tropical weather, all that good stuff. So uh, before we start tonight, uh, we do want to let you know that the dry weather is continuing out there. There's uh, increased fire danger for much of the Carolinas. So uh, we want to do our part in spreading the word and saying, hey, if you don't have to burn anything over the next few days, keep from doing it because it is very dry out there. And we're on the verge of uh, potentially seeing some, some wildfires as the conditions are really ripe for that. So uh, with that said, let's bring in our guests tonight. I want to introduce them as this. I, on Twitter, I hardly ever like turn the notifications on for when people tweet. Normally if I do, it's my sports teams. But Eric is the exception because if he is talking about it, then we need to really be following it. And that's in the winter weather category. So Eric, welcome to the show tonight. Uh, I, I know you're a, a big deal here in the Carolinas. A lot of us follow you. So uh, welcome to the show. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, kind of got hooked into uh, the weather world here. Oh, thank, thank you. Uh, so I got hooked in. Uh, well, it's, it's really, I can't point to any specific event, but uh, you know, I guess obviously used to watch Weather Channel when I was really, when I was really young. I think all of us kind of did that. I think for the most part, um, when I was like seven, eight years old. Uh, you know, I, I would say there's no particular event. It just kind of grew on me. And for a while, I used to play. You know, I used to play ice hockey, competitive, and eventually weather was like kind of like a hobby to me. But then it kind of turned into, well, I think this is going to be my career because, you know, if I get you know one or two injuries planned competitive sport you know I'm basically done don't have a college degree and I'm kind of kind of screwed so I didn't want to I didn't want to put myself in a corner like that and so I just decided to you know pursue it and you know I guess with winter weather obviously I've always always had a special place for that you know I can always remember I think you know oddly enough I didn't I think the one of the first memories I have was like when I was eight years old we had a snow like two inches on my birthday here that was really nice in 2004 and so that that was that was really awesome uh, but of course it melted within two hours, but I, I skipped school that day because I said it's going to snow and there's no point in me going to school. And my, my mom was, my parents are upset, but they said that was my birthday. They're, they're going to let me pass on that. So I said, okay. And then, you know, two hours later that they, they canceled school and they tried to send everybody home. And I was like, well, let's see, there you go. You know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I went to weather's always been so fascinating with me. Um, learned pretty early on when I was at NC state and a lot of my, a lot of my friends did that, you know, you always get a, you know, learn about the warm news and I, you know, it, you know, you always got to respect that. It's, there's always, I, I can remember only one storm, but almost always there's sleet or freezing rain, at least where, where I am. There's always rain or rain, sleep, rain, rain, sleet or freezing rain. <laughs> it's always one of those is always involved, except there was one case, you know, February 11th, 2014, we had, uh, it was just a nice overrunning event, light snow all day, 
That was the only time I can remember in the last 20 years I've been here that, we've, that we had snow start to finish. And it wasn't even a great storm. It was kind of like, eh. And the places that got the good snow had sleet and mixed precip before then. So it's always just comes with it. And, of course, tropics is just awesome, you know. I used to draw these little hand maps and stuff and draw like NGO diagrams and NSO stuff when I was in high school because I really liked it. I was passionate about it. And then uh, I started a, that ensemble and I, which, you know, is on my website. I started that when I was an undergrad. And uh, and so, you know, it's kind of been something I tweaked in with. But now we're writing a paper on it and trying to get it published. So, <laughs> so, so, so trying to, trying to get going. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, I'm just so going to derail us from the very beginning. No one else wanted to acknowledge the fact that Scotty thinks our tweets are unimportant. And only only <laughs> Eric gets notification status. That's I that's what I took out of that. I'm digging myself in. So I'm with you, Scotty. <laughs> and we're digging ourselves in a hole here. <laughs> uh, you were talking about it, so let's uh, let's talk about this uh, thing, Eric. That. All of us in the Carolinas like to talk about. We're gonna. We've got a lot of topics to talk about. But why is it Interstate 85 always that dividing line of the haves and the have-nots? I mean, <laughs> uh, we we all have our guesses, so we want to hear your guess. Well, what's what is it about Interstate 85? Uh, yeah, it's it, you know you know the interesting thing I guess about the highway system. I don't know. It just kind of goes back to the way it's built. So. Uh, you know, I think it was built and it was built during the 50s, the Eisenhower administration. And so 95, for example. They built it right on the fall line because that was the furthest inland they could go without getting into the Piedmont. So that so that's basically why they put 95 right about where it is in the Carolinas. Um, but 85, uh, it's just it's it's about as far west as it can generally go, I guess, without it starting to run really roughshod into a lot of the the it's more significant terrain, and so. Um, it's, it, it, it is, it, it parallels the, the topography and the elevation. And so there's actually, you know, there's the, the elevation in North Carolina, as you guys know, uh, runs from like, you know, I think, uh, Northwest, to, or not Northwest, Southwest to Northeast, roughly about parallel to the direction of 85. And so, you know, it just naturally fits, you know, and when you look at snow climb over a long period of time, it fits pretty well with about where it is. So it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of fallen in the topography. So it's some elevation dependence, I think, uh, that, that really, that really plays into it. But as soon as, if it's weird, as soon as you drop off into Georgia, you know, that's not really as much the case anymore. It seems like once you drop off, you know, across into northern Georgia, things are, things are a little bit different, you know, of course, Atlanta's just a, Atlanta is a pain to forecast for us. It's so such a big city, such a massive urban sprawl, and like northern parts of the city could have you know six, ten inches of snow, and the southern part could just have rain. And nothing. sounds like you, yeah. James, are in Charlotte. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eric, I think that in a way you're a bit cursed with knowledge. Uh, you're really good at seeing cold air damage events come from a ways <laughs> out. Um, and that really is a curse for meteorologists in the Carolinas. Could you explain a little bit how uh, cold air damming happens in the Carolinas and how you recognize it from seven to 14 days out? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, cold air damming is really interesting. Uh, so cold air damming, uh, you know, how we were how we were taught that. And obviously, I kind of knew when I before I went to undergrad, I kind of knew kind of about it, like what it was associated with. But basically what happens is when, 
when air, when you get uh, some eastward component of the wind, so it's actually not northward, but it's actually an eastward component of the wind, and you have a, uh, a long barrier. So the barrier, we would say, is the mountains. The mountains is our barrier. You have a long barrier pressure gradient force with lower pressure to the south or high to the north. You can actually get cold air damming without there being a high to the north. Um, you can actually just have a straight up, have just have a low to the south, and you can still get cold air damming. You can get cold air damming with even technically you could get it with a hurricane to your south. It's just the air's a little bit more buoyant and more easy, uh, easier across, you know, easier to cross the mountains. So you have an eastward component of the wind. Uh, and so typically, at least in the wintertime, the air is not as dense, cold, and it's, you know, less tempted to rise. You know, so it has a hot, as a, I think it's a higher fruit number. And so it's just going to, it's going to be hard to just go over the mountains. It just piles up against the mountains, basically in the terrain. And it, creates an area of higher pressure so that all that cold air just pools up pools up there and then of course you get a pressure ridge that develops sort of a adjustment process and then that pressure ridge creates this cad signature and it follows the terrain and so that's why you often see two of these cads sort of the, the markings of the cad will also follow things like you know 85 and whatnot but uh, at a synoptic scale i mean the thing you look for i mean the first thing is you know you get a big trough over atlantic canada so you know, when you see a trough off of over New England or south of Newfoundland, uh, that's his sign. And then if you have a short wave ridge coming in from the Great Lakes and a trough uh, in the southwestern U.S. or southern plains, it's ejecting east. That's like that's like the classic signature for cat. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any doesn't get any more classic than that. And so when you see that, when you see those features, like basically a negative PNA um, Pacific North American pattern. Uh, coupled with that uh, trough in, you know, Atlantic Canada and a ridge over the lakes, you typically will get, will get that. And, and you need, you actually need that ridge over the lakes to not just the cold air that's in place from that trough, but you also need that ridge over the lakes to sort of give you a lot of synoptic skill, forcing for descent sinking from the upper levels. Because without that, you don't really get the pressure rises quite as much. So you not only need that cold air to get that hydrostatic, adjustment, but you also need that forcing from the synoptic pattern, the waves themselves to actually push the air down physically. And so it's the combination of those two. And so, yeah, I, I actually wanted to, you know, so this was one of my first projects in Python when I was actually in grad school at UNC. I was like, man, I need to, I need to figure out what the heck is the SNOP 500 millibar pattern looked like, you know, with CADs and Miller A's. And so I did it. I was like, yep, yeah, this makes sense to me. <laughs> the CAD one, the CAD one surprised me more than Miller A1. Miller A1 was like just straight negative in AO. So I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, tell me something I don't know. So, <laughs> but yeah, the CAD one, yeah. The CAD one was a little surprising and, uh, and, and it's got, it's got a lot more nuances too. Cause the, you know, the negative in AOs just tends to persist a lot more, you know, like, kind of like this winter, as you guys see, you know, we had negative in AO almost continuous since that warming event, once the warming event, that stratospheric warming event uh, initiated it uh, in January. We pretty much had continuous negative NAL almost until pretty recently. And those kind of patterns just kind of reinforce themselves. CAD just kind of, it, it's very nuanced and it's dependent a lot more on sort of shorter, shorter waves and shorter wavelengths, cutoffs and whatnot. So, but yeah, yeah. And it gives you, uh, it, it's, and it's one of those things too, the models don't handle too well. It's because they're, I, the GFS, you know, it's, it's obviously you guys know the GFS and the Euro too. People people think the Euro is a good model, so I should just use it for CAD. But 
the euro also suffers from the same problems with GFS. It's just over mixes the boundary layer. And it's, it's such a shallow, shallow layer of cold air. And then it sort of feeds back on itself because if it over mixes it at one location, the CAD boundary moves up and it over mixes it at the next location. And just those errors had and probably going to top themselves. And so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, CAD's a really interesting phenomenon. It's, it's present in, in most of our events, but we don't necessarily have to have it to, you know, get sleep and freezing rain. Types. We all, we all, we'll find a way. I, we often find new ways to mess things up and screw it up. <laughs> so that's kind of, kind of what I've learned to, you know, is, uh, you know, there are some, some rules and general things to go by, but, you know, we all, we always find a way it seems like to kind of get screwy. <laughs> Absolutely. It's complex. It absolutely is. Um, Eric, we are live tonight, which we haven't done in a while. And we just got to really, oh my gosh, look at that. James has already got it on the screen. We just oh, got yeah. this comment. So a lot of folks know Eric from Twitter, um, but perhaps they haven't seen uh, his face before, but they do recognize his profile image. So which way am I pointing? This way. That That's what Eric's profile photo looks like. And this, if we can get, oh, that's on my screen. This is what Eric actually looks like. Oh, Eric, it's kind of funny. Uh, I'm making this laugh here. Uh, There's a, a face with the image. Uh, we're joined by our friend Christian Morgan. I want to bring him in because, Christian, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the missed opportunities this year of wintertime. And Eric is talking about the CAD. And you guys live in CAD Capital, I believe, there in, in the Gate City. That's what Greensboro. it says when you drive into the city. Yeah. Welcome to Greensboro, the CAD Capital. <laughs> The CAD capital and Rainsboro uh, is what we've called ourselves lately. Thankfully, we've had a stretch of dry weather, though. But you're right, guys. I mean, it is it, it's just CAD event after CAD event after CAD event. And, you know, you talk about that and people outside of North Carolina. Of course, you have that you have a CAD event and a, and a wedge set up again as you get over to the Rockies. But around here, you know, if you say CAD, people, people know exactly what you're talking about. You talk about cold air damming and people just, you know, now they've, they've become accustomed to knowing what it is. And you just say that and they're just like, oh, you just see this like pain wash over them. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> and the events have been very plentiful this year. No doubt about that. It's like the TikTok meme. Tell me you live in North Carolina without telling me you live in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about it. Uh, I, I think we've termed it. Uh, James has termed it in our in our um, in our tease tonight. It's the winter of missed opportunities. Where did all the snow go? So let's kind of give a, a setup, uh, Eric, as we were diving into winter. It was looking like a La Nina. Normally La Nina is kind of just tranquil around here, not much to going on, but it certainly wasn't like that this time. Yeah, it was certainly very different. I mean, yeah, we all look at those really nice compo you know, composites of and so even when you, you know, you look at like, you know, 15, 20 events, it's like this is what it should look like every time. But there's so much interannual variability this year in particular, it behaved a lot more like, uh, like an El Nino, to be honest. It was, it was, it was, it was a lot more like that in, in many ways. Um, exactly why that happened. It's, 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 it's kind of, it's kind of odd. I think part of it could be just the fact that the client, it seems like the jets were pretty far forward into the North this year uh, from, from normal. And so we had, you know, some sort of long-term signal, I think, getting forced in there. But there's also just a lot of randomness, too, that happens um, because of that. And uh, one of the things that kind of signaled, I guess, early that period of, you know, we had that prolonged period of blocking the North Atlantic, right, the negative NAO, that, that's also what contributed to our CAD events, a lot of CAD, and I can kind of explain that a little bit later. But 
Uh, and then the, so the kind of the precursor signal you see to like this, this they call this sudden stratospheric warming events is you get a big trough over northeastern Siberia, or they it's often associated with what's called the West Pacific Oscillation, or it's part of that. Um, but basically, when you get in the positive phase, you get sort of you have just the planetary scale waves or these waves that are not just you know individual troughs and ridges, they're thousands of miles in scale. And these are the kinds of waves that can actually affect things like the polar vortex. And this year we had a particularly strong uh, wave, you know, wave train there in the Western Pacific that triggered a stratospheric warming event. And then, then we had a then we actually had it, it timed it just right. This year we had a negative NAO start to develop before that came on. And then a couple with the stratospheric warming event and that propagated down and then just had this self-amplification of that. And it just kept going on and on. And the key to, and why I guess negative NEO contributed to all our CADs is because when that blocks there, it slows the flow down upstream of that. And so when these troughs are trying to exit Eastern North America, instead of just leaving and scooting out really nice and fast in North Atlantic, they slow down and they start to break. And that break just happened to be over Atlantic Canada and New England. And that's part of the reason why you keep getting CADs because then if you, keep getting cold advection over the CAD source region in Southeast Canada, New England, all you really need then is just, you know, a short wave behind that and an upper low in the Southwestern U.S. And we kind of had that uh, in part because as we were sort of in a, in a La Nina, we just, we just kind of getting unfortunate synoptic look, but I think that's part of it. I mean, that negative NAO just keeps giving you that trough there. And eventually you're just, eventually you're just going to keep getting CAD it. I think it's kind of unfortunate for us because <laughs> I, I really think a pattern like this, you know, in a cooler basic state climate would have probably dropped some really good snow, but, you know, it's, it really kind of sucks because, you know, our air masses are starting out 10 to 20 degrees warmer than they would have, <laughs> you know, 100, 150 years ago. And I think that that does play a part in it, but, but yeah, we get a lot, I mean, cold rain CADS is kind of, kind of stinks because, you know, you get, you get ice events, you know, you obviously when you get ice forms, it's self-limiting, but the problem is with those is, is you know, people in Greensboro, Northern Piedmont know all too well, but it gets to a point though, where it stops that, that process and you'll just hover right at 32. And some, and that, you know, that freezing rain, that latent heating of freezing can just no longer keep going. And so you just keep getting it over and over again. The interesting thing, when I looked at that paper too, they talked about Greensboro being the rain, freezing rain capital of the Southeast. There's obviously some sparse data but there, I think one thing that makes a little sense, I said, well, why the heck is it not up against, you know, like say Mount Airy, right? Or further Northwest. Well, one thing that kind of made sense to me a little bit though, and especially we saw that in January, was that actually towards the end of the CAD, as that low, we did have a low way to our South, but as it was pulling away, you started getting Northwesterly flow. And that Northwesterly flow created some downsloping off of the Blue Ridge. And that actually can shut off and mix the CAD right next to the mountains. And so it's actually in that little special zone from the triad to Roxborough and Northern Piedmont. And I think that, I think that plays a role in why, why they're the freezing rain capital <laughs> of the Southeast and the Alps because of that special little, you know, downsloping that often occurs right at the tail end of the cab that can kind of start mixing it out. Uh, and some of those areas are right very, very far to the Northwest. So um, but yeah, it was, it, it was just a lot of cold rain cads. It was one of the most miserable winters I've ever experienced. If it had at least one good storm, I would have been okay with it, but nope, uh, that didn't happen. So at least, Hey, but Hey, it snowed on Christmas morning here. So, you know what I, you know, I can't, I can't 
complain too, too much because, you know, as there was opening presents, it was actually snowing outside my house. I've never seen it. That was clutch. So I have to give it that. <laughs> that, that. That was a crazy event. Evan and I were texting that night and Evan, we were, <laughs> we were like, oh my gosh, here comes the freezing line. Here comes the freezing line. And Evan, I think got snow. We had a little rain snow mix here in the foothills, but that that sudden change when the wind blew through. I mean, it was it was yeah. insane. It was awesome. that was one of the sharpest temperature gradients I've ever seen in this area. I think we went from fifty seven, fifty eight to snowing, uh, and in the mid thirties in about I don't know less than thirty minutes, somewhere around twenty wow. minutes. Um, that that just doesn't happen in North Carolina that often. Maybe Oklahoma, sure, but around here, that was that was unique. That was awesome. That was that was so awesome, and you can even see there was. We were trying to get, we were trying to, we actually had an, enough cold air and a warm enough lakes where, and, and we had a good wind fetch in some spots where you started seeing some strata cumulus come off of some of the area lakes. I was, I was hoping there'd be some lake effect snow somewhere, but it didn't seem like that, that, that played out. And I, was, I was kind of, I was kind of sad about that, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it, I guess it is what it is. I guess the boundary there was just a little too dry, but, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was an insane event, man. I, but yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for that, this one would be a big fat F for me, but it's a D because I saw snow Christmas. So, you know, I, I, it's fine. <laughs> I have to, since we're grading, I have to give it to our other snow friend, Christian. What would, what would you rate this winter? Do we go any lower than F? Can we go <laughs> lower than that? I mean, you know what's funny? It's, you know, we, and it, and it happens, you know, we all go through right before the winter gets kicked off. We all go through this thing and we look at everything. We look at all the trends and we look at all the long range models and we're like, okay, this is how things are going to play out. But, you know, it's so interesting looking at it. It, especially being a, you know, being a La Nina year and we talked about it, you know, it kind of ended up being more like an El Nino year. Our cold air was so marginal like it was a cold winter and you know you have to think about it. the last couple winters we've had here at least in the triad have all been warm but this was a relatively cold winter but it was really marginal cold and every time we got a storm that came through it was always borderline you know the the cold air was just borderline marginal there was never really a big uh huge high pressure pump of cold air that got us locked in so we pretty much missed out on every opportunity and of course the classic north carolina cold air damming or 33 and rain is what we saw but you know people say oh it was a cold winter it was but it was really marginally cold we never got any really prolonged super super cold snaps in fact we only had tim and i were crunching the numbers here the other night we only had one night in the teens um it's better than last year we had zero we didn't have a single night in the teens uh hmm. 2019 2020 season but this past winter we only had one in the teens so yeah it was cold but it wasn't you know super cold cold as somebody who lives south of Interstate 85 in the Charlotte region, what Christian just described about just like borderline, but never good enough to actually get us into real winter. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I don't even know if I would give it an F because I just assumed it wasn't going to snow. I just assumed like Huntersville would get it and I wouldn't. I believe uh, we used the word marginal so much this winter. It was more than when we explained the marginal outlook for <laughs> thunderstorms. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I think if I were to give winter three grades, it would be a C, an A, and a D. That was like a dad level <laughs> joke. You're welcome. Well played. That was good. That was nice. That was the, That's the it. Number. I'll be here all week. Good night, everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh uh let's let's talk about yeah. snowfall uh eric uh 
I know technically winter is not finished yet. I mean, if we go by the astronomical uh, aspect of it, we still have another 10 days or so. But uh, how has the how has North Carolina fared, you know, in the in the snowfall department? Was there uh, any winners or any? I know there's a lot of losers, but were there any winners? Yeah, there were quite a few. Uh, obviously, for the mountains, um, if you were in the ele- at elevation, you actually by the mid latter part of January, you actually had uh, normal snow, at least normal snowfall by then. And then, of course, you know we had a little icing on the cake from a few other systems there. So the mountains did pretty well. Uh, and then it was basically kind of like middling snow snowfall, you know, across parts of the of the you know coastal plain northern piedmont and then then it was basically almost a shutout it actually was a shutout um in places like uh, columbus county brunswick uh down in the southern part of the state so south of fayetteville there was south of about lumberton elizabeth town there was literally nothing so so yeah so th- those were definitely losers but uh, you know i'd say you know the winners you know the northern coastal plain at least they had it they had at least one storm you know um, you know, if you want to say there's any losers, I think it would be from the triad, especially north of the triad, you know, we having two or three really legit ice storms, <laughs> you know, in a row. And, you know, having those, you know, having those ice storms was just, it was just, it was just bad. But yeah, we talked about, you know, we talked about, you know, how this winter was just so marginal and so, uh, it was chilly, but it was marginal, you know. That, that's on a hemispheric scale. That's that's kind of a symptom of when you're in a negative NAO and you don't have blocking in the North Pacific. And so, when you have a negative NAO, you know, the, if you look at the correlation maps, which I'm sure you guys, you know, have all seen, you know, you negative NAOs. Oh, it's chilly in Southeast. Yeah, it is. It's chilly and cool. But negative NAO by itself uh, is not necessarily a prerequisite for that. And so, what we have, and to normally to get negative NAOs, you t- tend to have, uh, you know a trough in the North Pacific because there's like a, there's actually like a, a wave, wave train that goes on into it, it, these waves from the Pacific propagate into the stratosphere. And at times, except this winter, obviously it was a little different, but when you have typically in normal conditions without a stratosphere forming event, you have a polar vortex. When these waves in the Pacific are, say, say you have like a low in the Pacific, um, the energy from that wave will propagate and and there'll be less uh, downward propagation into North America. And so you'll tend to get a ridge over, say, like North Central Canada and into Greenland. And so you get a negative NAO. This year, I mean, negative NAO, we just, uh, we just didn't have a lot of cold air. It was all marginal because the Pacific wasn't really cooperating. We didn't really have a, a legit block there. And when we did get one, which was uh, in towards wider part of January and into February, we just didn't get the right rave path. We had the vortex sitting basically over Lake Superior. And, and all that had to happen, literally, all that had we had to do is to get that vortex from Lake Superior and push to, like, Toronto. And then we would have gotten blasted, I mean, with, with snow. So all the snow that was in Texas, you saw in the Mid-South, that would have been here. And so it was very frustrating because I knew how close it was. And those, some of those GFS runs that showed, you know, snow like that, I'm like, well, yeah, that you know verbatim. But if you look at the pattern and why it was making that, you're like, well, if it actually does, that pattern actually goes to that, then you know maybe it's something like that could have happened. So, yeah, it was just a missed opportunity. But yeah, without you know without having high latitude North Pacific blocking, you know you don't these air masses don't tend to be super cold. So you tend to get a lot of continental polar air masses and negative NAO 
um, just by itself. So it needs to, it needs to have, needs to have a friend, you know, negative EPO or, or some sort of negative WPO just to send some air from Siberia across the pond. Cause without that, you're just going to get these marginal air masses, which sometimes they do work. It's just, we just suck, I guess. Um, is all I can say. <laughs> I think I a few times it just, this didn't line up just right. We could have really made it work. But, Eric and Christian, yeah. I want to get your opinion on one more thing and then we'll, we'll kind of transition. And, um, you know, Christian, I feel like you and I have talked about this, but what, what is your, what's your take on the models this year? I mean, it seems like they really just kind of struggled this year. I mean, what, what, what do y'all think? Yeah, really rough. And, you know, Eric can probably break, break this down even a bit more. But, you know, in a simple, simple, easy way to explain it, we didn't have as much much going on in the air. You know, there wasn't as, as many air airplanes and aircraft. And we get a lot of our data from models from that. And so I think they kind of struggle with the lack of that. You think about COVID and how it impacted pretty much everything. It really impacted the weather, too, and impacted our forecasting abilities. And, you know, I, I don't say that for that to be a for, for that to be a cop. I was like, oh, we don't have enough data. But, I mean, really, you know, the lack of data – I would, you know, I would definitely think contributed in, in some way, shape or form. Eric, can you, can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, I've seen, so from the Europe, ECMWF, they came with an article and they said there was no significant difference um, in their forecasting, but I, I tend to think it could have had some effect. I, I you know, I don't think it's zero, um, even if it's not measurable or significant in there in some sort of measure. Um, I think one of the big things that really sucked for us it actually comes down to the way the circulation pattern set up. And so when you tend to get winters like this, we actually had lots of high latitude blocking. So when you get like the negative NAO, negative NAO, when the flow slows down a lot and you have these really, these, these amped waves that are trying, that are basically breaking in so many places, it creates a lot of problems in the models. And so we had that pretty much most of the winter and that really, that really screwed with them pretty well. Um, you know, the, the negative NAO, you could also, I guess, technically call it by definition, it would be called what they call a Rex block, where you get a big high latitude block and a trough underneath. We had that actually quite a few times this winter and just messed, it just messed the models up a lot. So yeah, these, when you have blocking that your predictability just goes right into the tank. And then, <laughs> so despite the fact that when you have, you know, warming events, it tends to be enhanced, but yeah, the individual storms, yeah, it, it was. And then, you know, and with the ice storms we had in February, you know, uh, in early February, late January, we were right on the we were right on the gradient between having you know a super really cold outbreak like this. This that pattern had potential to really had to rival some of the really big dogs around here, or if it backed off a little bit more, we would have been having you know potential for thunderstorms just to our south and southern areas. And so we also were kind of in just a precarious, unstable situation. I think that's also kind of kind of played into it, played into it as well. It was, it was just, it was really frustrating to see places like, you know, Del Rio, Texas, which averages about as much snow as Charleston, South Carolina. <laughs> they got about uh, 18 this winter, whereas well, their snowiest winter on record, and they had two or three really good storms. I was, that, that hurt, that hurt a lot. So um, <laughs> just knowing this, you know, knowing if things really could have set up, and even Brownsville had snow and ice, so I was, I was just, uh, yeah, it's frustrating, but I think it was just the precarious, you know, setup and just the way kind of the circulation, I feel like we were just kind of hand, we were just given a bad hand, you know, we we're given a bad poker hand, like, Oh crap. You know, now we got to play with that. <laughs> <Missed> <laughs> <So>. opportunities. <laughs> you know, the Missed other, 
the other thing, when you think about this winter and you think about our missed opportunities and you can, you can go back and, and talk about how bad, how bad or how bad the models did or didn't do. But a lot, what we were finding a lot is that, well, you know, as you guys know, you can never take, you can never take a model snowstorm as gospel. And, you know, and, and the models don't do a good job with doing totals around here. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, the models are always going to spit out like a 10 to one ratio. And that's not really ever our setup around here to have a 10 to one snow ratio. Um, and you factor in the marginal cold air that we had in place. You know, these were really wet snows. Um, we also had to battle a lot of dry air and the models just don't take that kind of stuff into account. Um, so, you know, where we would cut totals in half, if not more than that, I mean, we still ended up on the higher side of things more times than not this time around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, it was, it was just, you know, bad, just handed bad hand after bad hand, you know, some, sometimes you get handed a good storm every once in a while, you know, 20, you know, with 2018, we had one of those mid January, we had that upper low come through, you know, and you knew it was going to be all snow start to finish. You just had to forecast how much QPF you're going to get, you know, and because there was, there was, you know, it was all, it was all driven by CVA and there was no warm infection. So I said, okay, you know, this is actually going to be snow and it's going to be snow to start to finish. It just has to be, you know, you know, cold enough, but yeah, we just, just handed bad storm after bad storm and just, just a pattern that, you know, it's just notoriously harder to predict. I think, <laughs> I think just, and I think, and I think the data, you know, hurt the models maybe a little bit, but, um, but yeah, I, th I think just a combination of things just kind of, kind of screwed with us. Yeah. It was, it was frustrating. <laughs> well, fellas, I say let's put the frustrating winter behind us and chat about some more fun winter season yeah. uh, pre-show. We were chatting about a couple of events um, from many years past before any of us were alive. Eric has a wonderful database of winter storms going all the way back to the 1800s. Uh, Eric, I'd like to put you the question. What's the wildest storm that you've ever cataloged in that database? Yeah. So we were talking about this, I think pre-show, right? So one of the wildest storms I cataloged, in the, you know, it's actually in May, 1939. And so when you actually look in the thirties archive, you actually see it May 2nd. It's, it was an upper low that came through the deep South and, it started out in the morning time from, this is from just written records of from what I can remember, so, like sifting through. Uh, actually, cause I actually read these monthly, <laughs> they have like the, the weather bureau back then they would produce for each state. They would produce like a monthly summary. And then from those states and they'd have like co-op observers would produce their own records. Some of them would be detailed. Some of them would be really lazy and not even report anything, you know, except maybe a precip amount and, or leave a comment like, Oh, it snowed okay, but tell me how much it snowed, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, this storm is nuts. And like, it was like nine or 10 in the morning, these thunderstorms rolled through the Northern Piedmont from areas like Triad and, and Raleigh-Durham area. And then what started happening is it stormed enough and the column aloft was cold enough that this, this rain, this heavy storm started to change and mix with sleet and grapple in places just outside the Triad and in Raleigh-Durham. And then it was actually cold enough aloft that it started to change to snow about 10 o'clock in the morning in May 2nd, 1939. So I actually know the hour because there were three separate co-op observers in Roxborough, Oxford, and Henderson that actually wrote in their, in their logs nicely. They said it changed to snow and sleet about 10 o'clock in the morning on May 2nd. This is May. This is in May. And then it's kept doing that for about two hours and they had about an inch and a half on the ground. 
uh, of course, you know, Roxborough and, and Oxford and Henderson. And yeah, it was, it was thunder snow. They, they said there was lots of thunder and lightning. It was, it was, it was mixing with grapple and sleet. So you had thunder, snow, thunder, sleet, thunder, you know, th- thunder, a thunderstorm, you know, you had, you had, you had everything kind of all at once. That was, and it was in May too, which is nuts, which I, and you know, I was like, they're, they're, that's just absolutely insanity. So I didn't think I would ever see a storm that late in the year, but yeah, so it, it can, well, I, I don't think it can happen now, but you know, because <laughs> it's just, because it, it, it was really crazy about it is I think the latest trace of snow, even like DC, like Washington, DC is like April 28th. And I, so I think I'm like, dang, it's four days later down here. So it had to be, had to be super anomalous. It, I mean, that storm's right up there with its November 2014 storm. You, you guys probably remember where there was an upper low that came through the South and it snowed about four or five inches down in South Carolina, Columbia, Gilbert, South Carolina. That was, I couldn't believe that. I said, there's no way, <laughs> you know, had somebody from there giving me pictures, sending me a ruler. I said, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and of course it hasn't snowed down there since then. So it's like, of course, it's almost October. It snows. And then for the next, you know, five winters now, nah, just kidding. I'm just not. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That was the craziest one I'd say. <laughs> I don't know if weather Twitter would survive that kind of an event nowadays. I think it'd pretty much melt down. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I, I would have melted down. <laughs> uh, oh, the snow would have melted down, but and the and 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 Twitter, yeah. I mean, the snow would have probably melted before even even came down to the ground here. It's just, I live, I live in, you know. One thing I notice when it snows here is my yard; it always melts first. I, you know, and I think there's a volcano or something underneath my yard. I don't know what it is, but apparently, I, I don't know. Either that, I think part of the problem is my fault. Because every time we get a good snow here, I make a snowman and I take all the snow in the yard, and so my albedo goes way into the tank <laughs> so so i think i think i'm part of the problem but uh you know yeah that, that's frustrating I, it make, makes me sad every time i see it you know my my the yard just gets devoid of snow first <laughs> that's the most scientific yeah. breakdown of a snowman that i think i've ever heard yeah <laughs> well eric uh one other thing before we cut you loose is something that you're really passionate about and I'm sure if you follow Eric on uh, Twitter, you've seen these, but you um, have quite the collection of, uh, you're really talking about it just a minute ago, about these snowfall maps. So what kind of uh, kind of stirred the interest to uh, to collect all this data and to make it uh, out there so all of us can, can do our history and, and search these bigger events? Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, trying not to call anybody out, but I missed, so I, I used to, I've been a big snow lover. I loved, you know, the databases from local NWS WFOs. But um, part of the thing that I was really yearning for just when I was an undergrad is, as I learned for those analyses, you know, those storms from like Raleigh, you know, GSP, Moorhead City, et cetera. But they tended to stop doing them about 2016 or so. And 2016, 2017, I said, dang. I said, well, I got to figure out a way to do this myself, you know, put these together. And then I started figuring out, you know, how to get access to the data. Uh, And then I had, you know, I I had a okay following back then. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start gathering some, some obs and start trying it out myself. And then I made like a couple maps here and there. Um, And then I, I, you know, and then I said, Oh, you know, I should make some more and and just do a couple of the really big storms. And I said, no, no. I said, 
and eventually got to a point where, you know, I started doing the big storms. I was like, I might as well just try doing a whole season of storms. And then I was like, oh, I could really do something with this, you know? And then now it's ballooned into this giant archive. I eventually want to turn that into, you know, a, a data set. We can all use like a gridded data set that you guys can all look at and you can have like things like uncertainties, stuff like that in there. Um, and you can go in and, you know, download it in GIS, uh, Python or, or what have you, or even in Excel. I eventually want to do that uh, at some point, but I'm, I'm probably years away from getting to that point. But, but yeah, th that's what drove me to do it. it was just, you know, not having the access to those maps from, you know, I was like, you know, I, was like, oh, I want to make it myself. And now I just, you know, I just do it regardless. I just, I just do it because it's, I find it's also easier to analyze a storm when it's right after it's happening versus when you wait, you take a couple years off and you try to go back, you start some of those pieces of information kind of just get lost in the wayside and, and they kind of get lost the time. And so, and it's harder to find them. And so I try to do it right out, right, right as it's happening. Cause it's, cause it's a lot easier because <laughs> I've started to find it out the hard way trying to do storms from like even the eighties and nineties. It's like, man, I wish you guys would have done these back then. You know, that would have, that would have saved me a lot of heartache because there's lots of issues with stations and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, that, that, that's how, kind of how it started. And then I was like, you know, interested in like, Hey, I want to see, you know, if there's any correlation with INSO or things like that. Um, and th there's a little bit of one. I mean, when you have, you know, La Nina winters like this one are, are usually, I mean, they're usually drier than average and they're usually less snow than average, but there's only a signal in the mountains in the Northwest Piedmont. El Nino winters tend to, tend to be when you get your heartaches, heartbreaks. If you're like you're heartbroken when you're in like Raleigh and Charlotte, you tend to get it broken more than often <laughs> than not. <laughs> There's usually a big seasonal gradient, uh, bigger than normal between uh, say like Raleigh and Greensboro. And what was interesting is when you look back even to the 1890s, this 2010s is actually the, has the biggest, uh, de the, as far as a decade average, the biggest seasonal gradient between RDU and GSO uh, in the last 120 years. Um, and so it's, it maybe maybe there's something going on in the climate that's forcing that. Maybe just getting bigger storms, just warmer and bigger storms, uh, or it's just you know hardly bad luck. But yeah, it's it kind of it's it, yeah. This past decade, there's been a lot more heartbreaks than normal, I would say. And so I kind of had to feel for for folks down there in the triangle. And for for you folks who live in Raleigh and wondering why Greensboro gets all your snow, you can write Christian Morgan at WFMY. He uh, he'll take all those uh, fan letters. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Well, we're uh, approaching uh, closing up uh, shop here. Does anybody else have anything to throw out there before we kind of end? I had one thing I wanted to ask. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Frank. So anyway, uh, Eric, if uh, those folks out there who have uh, some technical interest in trying to make those maps can can give folks an idea of, of what it takes to to uh, create those maps. Uh, what what sort of uh, knowledge you have to have? Uh, what what sort of programming skills and uh, what computer uh, software you need to uh, to put those things together? And uh, a typical snow map that you have, how much time does it take for you to to put say one of those maps together that covers one storm? Yeah, yeah that's, those are all really great questions. I mean, so I guess the, you know, it, it helps having, you know, a little bit of programming skills. So I guess to make my maps, I actually downloaded, I think from the USGS site, they had like county and state shape files. So I actually got Python and Python's a free software. So anybody can use it. You just got to download it on a computer and just follow. It's actually super easy today. You can just download Anaconda and 
you know, it does a lot of this, a lot of the installing for you. So you just only have to do like one line of code to install a lot of the packages. And so I highly recommend getting Python and Anaconda sort of as a package. It's really helpful. And so it kind of gives you like a state map. You could do like, you know, county, the section area, you could do two states, you could do a region, you can kind of do anything you want with that. And so, so, and that's a good place to start. Um, I actually use a photo editing software. I've tried using GIS before, but I, I like having a little bit more control over it. And I've done, you know, you know, so many that I start to recognize like terrain features. I start to remember like, you know, typically where, where all those, those things kind of lined up. Um, but yeah, I use uh, this photo editing software called pixlr.x. That's actually what I use to draw each one. Um, and I usually spend about five or six hours doing it. Um, and it starts usually with gathering NWS OBS uh, from social media, from you guys. All you guys really help out a lot with that, uh, you know, scouring that and I scour forums. Uh, and then I, then any miscellaneous sources. So like, you know, going on Facebook and stuff. So it usually takes, you know, four or five hours to, to do a, a map and do it, you know, kind of right and, and tweak it up. But yeah, it's, it, yeah, it can be, a, can be a, it can be a lot sometimes, but uh, it, it's worth it in the end because, you know, when you do the storm, you really have to do it right then and there. Because if you wait, the longer you wait, the more you're going to forget some of those things and some of that data that was easy to access, it's just going to kind of, kind of go, kind of go away. And so it's usually important to just get it out now, at least some have something there. Um, I also go to this site, the Midwestern Regional Climate Center. They have a really nice site where they actually can, you can go in and you can make, they, they don't have, they don't do a lot of like the like quality controlling and stuff. And so when, when I make a lot of maps, I do a lot of that, but you can, they, they'll give you like spatial interpolated maps and they'll give you like lists of observations and they actually have maps of theirs that go back to 1900. And so I actually use that to help guide some of my uh, older, older maps as well and, and see if I missed anything. Cause sometimes I often do. Um, and I also go to, uh, so for the older maps, the one my, my main, Go, there's two go-tos. I go to the Southeastern Regional Climate Center. They got the Now Data site. Uh, that, that, that's a great use, user interface. It's awesome. <laughs> um, you can also access this through NWS. And then I go to the NCDC uh, IPS Image and Publication System site. So I actually look at each publication. So the weather bureaus post their, their monthly summary, and then I go in through each ob and actually check it. And so and if there's anything that I change or if there's any, you know, special, you know, you know, or any, anything that, that I correct from that, that observation or is anything that, that's not directly reported. Let's say this happens a lot. This is a good example. Let's say you go check through the ob and it says trace of snow reported in the comments uh, on say day, say, Mar say it's March 19th. And you look beside their obs, rainfall and snow, and they don't report anything. I'm like what the heck? So then I go in there and I actually <laughs> write it down. I said trace, I said observer reported in comments or or, you know, or, or things like that. And so it also takes the meteorological intuition as well, because sometimes you'll see just like QPF amounts and you'll get like snow reported and then you'll have to use some, some intuition about, you know, nearby observations and stuff like that. So some of that actually comes into play uh, sometimes, especially with those older storms. So that's why I try to get it done right then and there because it's, <laughs> it's, easy, it's much easier then. Yeah. <clears throat> so Eric, uh, as we close up, how can we uh, follow you? What's a good way to follow you on social media? And I know you have a website, so we'd love for you to, uh, to throw that out there and let all our followers and listeners and watchers know how they can, uh, can follow you. Yeah. You just uh, follow me on Twitter or think Weber weather. Yep. 
And uh, you can go on weberweather.com, which is, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's pinned to my profile page. So I got my uh, snowfall archive on there. I'm still, I, I'm still in the process of building that. So it's not complete. It's about halfway there, <laughs> I'd say. And then I got this uh, thing called the Ensemble Oceanic Menu Index. I also highly recommend that. Um, it's something I've been working with about as long as my snow maps. And it's actually what I did my, part of it was what I did my master's thesis on. I, I eventually plan to actually put my master's thesis up um, like the PDF of it. So you guys could obviously read it if you'd like. It's on, uh, you know, INSO events and the instrumental record. And we're actually working on, uh, you know, building this even further back in time. But uh, yeah, I used, uh, I used a lot of, I had to use basically all of my, you know, all the coding skills I learned in college and all the sort of, you know, data, data, data sites I go to and kind of pulled everything out all the stops out to get this uh, product going, but it's really cool. And um, it goes back to 1850 to the present and, and uh, it's like an ensemble of reanalysis uh, data sets. So it's, it's probably, it's, I'd say I've, I've spent actually more time doing that than the maps. <laughs> I'd say it's getting that done. Uh, but yeah, it, it's really awesome. And we're, we're planning to, you know, put something out, hopefully a paper on that soon so you guys can actually have some literature uh, on that and like a short paper and uh also we're planning to make like an slp based index of this there's actually some good slp data that's come out recently um that's even prior to 1850 that we could try to at least look at and maybe a lot corroborate with like proxy studies and things like that so we're trying to try, try my best to expand it but yeah it's really cool you know you can see like you know these inso events there, there's like this centennial i'm not going to try to give anything away but this is really interesting is that a lot of the literature we read in our data, we actually see this longer term variability in El Nino behavior. So El Nino is over 50 to 70 years period, roughly. They actually go through cycles. It seems like the last several hundred years of, of amplitude. So, so yeah. So anyway, so anyway, so sorry, 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 I'm going too long and sorry for, sorry for talking a lot. I, sorry. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just follow me weather, 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 go to my site. Yeah. You look at snow maps uh, and, and so indices and all that. And I plan to have a lot more of that in, uh, available soon. Yeah. Well, we, we appreciate your time and we hope next year you have a lot of uh, snow maps to make for us here in the Carolinas. We have some yeah. years to make up for. So, yeah. We, we hope to put you to work uh, a lot next year. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. We appreciate your time, Eric. And before we close off, Christian, I got to ask you this question. Okay. All right. Uh, it's an investigative question. We've got Tim Buckley's Twitter profile up. I want to know something. What the heck's going on in Greensboro with all these purple lights? <laughs> the aliens are coming. I'm kidding. Uh, we are trying to figure that out, too. Apparently, so we've learned a lot this evening. Um, and I never really thought too much about it. And I thought I was the only one that had seen some because I travel back and forth to Raleigh um, a fair amount. And I've noticed plenty of them in that area. Well, then I, I saw Tim talking about this today. And I said, oh, you know, maybe I'm not the only one. And come to find out that, well, one, the city of Greensboro actually does not maintain the streetlights, which is like super weird <laughs> to me. Uh, it's actually Duke Energy that maintains these streetlights. Mm -hmm. Crazy how that works. Uh, and apparently they're just basically like bad or messed up LED lights. You know, they're replacing a lot of the old old style streetlights with LEDs to be more you know, efficient and energy uh, independent and to be brighter. And these are apparently just bad bad lights they put in so they have to get around to fixing them but they're weird they're kind of creepy looking they are so i'm sorry for the, the podcast listeners you'll have to type up tim's uh 
Twitter page. He's, he's got these videos, <laughs> and, these purple lights, and I'm kind of weirded out by it. <laughs> in no way, shape, or form are these. Oh, oh there he is right now. <laughs> these lights are terrible, and we're going to try and get them fixed. So Tim Buckley, I mean, making all of it work tonight. Let me tell so you. So bad. And <laughs> if imagine if you're just minding your own business and your light gets changed outside your street. And then you have to live with this purple light in your window, like all the time. You're crazy. <laughs> so we're gonna try and figure this out. Um, the, well, the weather's quiet. We have nothing better to do. It's investigative reporting, you know. Yes. Yeah. We're on the task, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, thank you, Tim, for that. We expect a follow up next week. Okay. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> all right, that's all I have, uh, James. Uh, you have anything to add? <laughs> I can't top that. No. I will say, I will say that I was also surprised to learn that Duke Energy maintains the streetlights. That's the same here in Charlotte. Yeah, they're not purple though. Uh, the green. They, they, may, <laughs> they may be coming soon. Um, James, before we close out, we have a cool opportunity coming up at the end of the month. You want to share? Yes. That we do. So we have a sport storm spotter training coming up at the end of the month. The National Weather Service Columbia office and the Carolina Weather Group would like to see you join us. It is going to be Friday, March the 26th at 630. You live in the Carolinas. You live anywhere in the United States. Come on out. This is going to be a virtual course. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You need no prior experience. And the great folks at the National Weather Service will teach you how to observe weather in your own backyard. They are looking for things like snowfall, like we talked about tonight, or rainfall, or in those, in those scenarios, severe weather observations. And you can become an extension of their eyes and ears by taking this training, becoming a verified storm spotter, and joining the Skywarn Network. So again, this is free. It is Friday, March 26th, 6.30 no previous experience is needed. You can join from wherever you are, and we will put the link on social, or you can find it at carolinaweathergroup.com. And I signed up to bring virtual pizza, so that mm. contributed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm coming expect, back to this. I expect all of y'all uh, to bring something as well. Um, Evan, you've put up something cool on the website. Uh, it's starting to become spring, and so we're wanting to get out there and get active. So tell us what's going on over there. Yeah, so we've been doing lots of renovations to the website. Um, if you visit it every now and then, uh, you're going to be really surprised next time you come back because uh, it looks nothing like it did even two weeks ago. But we have just released a new tool for those of you that live in Western North Carolina or not necessarily in Western North Carolina, but you visit Western North Carolina. Uh, it is called, I don't know if it has a name, uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway Closure <laughs> Map. Um, but we are just trying to publicize this a little bit because we think it's a tool that could benefit a lot of people. I'll share this real quick, and then I know we're, we're going to close. We've still got Eric with us, so Eric, we appreciate you sticking around with us. Um, but it is a real-time Park Blue Ridge Parkway openings and closures map. So this will update twice a day, right around 7.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m., and it will show uh, what sections of the parkway are open, which are closed. Uh, this will be for North Carolina at the top oh, and for the Virginia section at the bottom. Um, so... If you ever visit the parkway, check this page out. Uh, it is, if you go to our home, if you type in carolinaweathergroup.com, you're bringing you to this homepage, um, and then you just click on Parkway Map at the very top. Bring you over here, and you can enjoy your trip to the Blue Ridge Parkway without having the fear of running into a barricade, as uh, so often happens <laughs> this time of year. 
right, Christian. A bear, on the other hand, <laughs> I can't. Have bear. I don't have. I don't have a script for that. Man, Christian, <laughs> Christian texts me. His his computer is about to die. So Christian, say bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Eric has always learned a lot from you. And uh, Frank, Evan, great to see you guys too. Appreciate you having yeah, me. Good on. to see you. Go and get your milkshake now, okay? Oh, right. stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for watching the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you enjoyed this live edition. Uh, be uh, Stay tuned with us for the rest of the week as we continue Severe Weather Awareness Week for the Carolinas. We'll be posting the information about that for the rest of the week. And we got some pretty exciting shows lined up for you in the next few weeks. So be sure to tune back in next Wednesday night for an all new episode of the Carolina Weather Group. Till then, have a great weekend, everyone.